And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. Well, if you're struggling with the deep truths about God's sovereignty that we've been trying to unhash here, working through Romans 9, you're in good hands. In 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16, uh, Peter is probably referring to Romans 9 when he says, "...regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul..." According to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of of these things, in which are some things hard to understand. Uh, Yeah, which the untaught and the unstable distort, as they do also the rest of Scripture, to their own destruction. Now, Peter is talking about God's patience in delaying judgment. In that context, Peter refers to Paul's writing about the same thing. Well, there's only three places where Paul ever uh, wrote about God's patience. One is Romans 2.4. We covered that a long time ago. Romans 9.22, which is in our passage today. And then 1 Timothy 1.15 and 16. And, and this is where Paul is referring to his own salvation, that God was patient with him. Now, out of those three... The only text that is especially especially difficult to understand is Romans 9. So the Apostle Peter, he may have been acknowledging that he found our text to be difficult. Now, he's just a fisherman, all right, but God used him mightily. But he says, yeah, this, this was tough. Here are some questions that you may be struggling with in Romans 9. How is it fair for God to love Jacob and and hate Esau before they were even born. That's verses 11 and 13. If salvation does not depend on man's will or on man's effort, that's verse 16, then how do we obtain it? And if God has mercy on whom he has mercy and he uh, on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires, that's verse 18, then how can he judge the one that he that he hardens? That's verse 19. That's the beginning of our passage today. Now, maybe you want to put on your spiritual boxing gloves and get in the ring with Paul. Perhaps you think that you can spar with him. So you read verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? And at that point, you go, yeah, Paul, that's a great, that's a great question. Give me the answer. And at that, uh, so Paul responds in verse 20, but who are you, O man? To answer back to God, will that what is will what is molded say to its molder, "Why have you made me like this?" At that point, you may feel that Paul copped out. He asked the right question in verse nineteen, but uh, then he kind of dodges giving me the answer that I wanted in verse twenty. Well, it's at this point that you have to realize that you're not boxing with Paul. You're actually in the, in the ring with God. Uh, he gave you the answer, but you don't like it. So you, you read it again. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? It doesn't, doesn't say to answer back to Paul. It's not Paul you're, that you're having a problem with here. You see, you have been contending with God. I don't know if you remember this, but when God confronted Job, uh, and he asks us this question as well, will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? 
You should echo Job's reply. Job said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? Talking back to God. I lay my hand on my mouth. (laughs) Once I have spoken, then I will not answer, even twice, and I will add nothing more. On that day, the fight is over. God has won. And you really need to bow the knee before God's sovereign right to be God. I came to that point 23 years ago, and and there's still much that I don't understand. But God's right to do as He pleases for His glory hasn't bothered me since then. I'm content to let God be sovereign. I'm content to let God be God. Well, our main point this morning is this. The sovereign God has the right to deal with sinful creatures in such a way as to display His glory both, here's the key, both in judgment and in mercy. Now, the, Paul, the, the question that Paul anticipates in verse 19, it could be paraphrased, well, if God has mercy on whom He desires and He hardens whom He desires, that's verse 18, then are we just robots? Don't we have free will to choose or reject God? If we don't, then how can He rightly judge us since we are just acting as He programmed us to act? Now, this would have been a perfect place for Paul to have responded, well, your question shows that you misunderstood me. I didn't mean that people can't resist God's will. That would deny their free will. What I meant was God has on mercy, has mercy on whomever he foreknows will trust in him. And he hardens all those he foreknows will reject him. But Paul didn't say that, did he? He didn't say anything like that. His answer shows that Paul is teaching that God has the sovereign right to display His power and to have His name proclaimed throughout the whole earth by dealing with Pharaoh in judgment. That's verse 17. And to display the glory of His, or the riches of His glory, God is free to love Jacob. He is free to show mercy to Moses and others. Maybe you've experienced that mercy. Well, let's, let's work through this line of fault, um, thought. Number one, the sovereign God has all the rights to deal with sinful, sinful creatures as He chooses. Sinners have no rights. This is verses 19 through 21. Remember, Paul allowed that earlier question, there is no injustice with God, is there? But he responded instantly, may it never be. But here for this question, question number two, He says, you've crossed the line. You're out of bounds in even asking the question. Just who do you think you are? You need to humble your heart before the almighty sovereign of the universe. Now, John Calvin points out that the question not only defends the one asking it, but it also makes God the guilty one. It attempts to turn the tables by saying, God, it's your fault that I'm sinning. You're the sovereign potter. I'm just the passive, helpless clay. So how can you blame me for my sin? I'm just the way you made me. So the very question, who resists his will, is actually to resist his will. Now, it's not true that God made us to be sinners. God made us perfect. 
The human race was plunged into sin when Adam and Eve sinned. And you say, aha, there you go. See, it's not my fault. I didn't have anything to say about the matter. But to say that is to contend with the all-wise, sovereign God who assigned to Adam his role as head of the human race. His action affected the entire race. Just as a president's action to take a nation into war, that affects the entire nation. Besides, to challenge the fact that you sinned in Adam is simply uh, is to imply arrogantly that you would have done better. <laughs> Trust me, you wouldn't have done better. And as to dodge the obvious fact that whether you were guilty in Adam or not, you've got plenty of guilt in your own track record to, commend you, to condemn you. This means that you don't really have a leg to stand on when it comes to arguing with God about how He deals with you or with other sinners. He holds all the cards. To blame God's sovereignty for your sin is shameless audacity. It'd be like a mass murderer arguing in, arguing in court. It's my parents' fault. They shouldn't have conceived me. Or it's the law's fault. If we didn't have all these stupid rules against murder, I wouldn't be guilty. It's at this point that Paul brings in the, old, the frequent Old Testament metaphor of God being the potter and people being the clay. Job and Jeremiah use it once. Isaiah uses it four different times. Of course, when you write 66 books, you know, you, you can do that. Paul is asserting God's right to make of the clay whatever he needs to further his purpose. And what's his purpose? His own glory. If he wants to make a vessel for dishonorable use to display his glory in judgment, he has that right. If he wants to make another vessel for honorable use to display his glory in mercy, he has that right. The clay has no rights. Now I want you to notice something. One little word in this verse says an awful lot. Both the vessels for dishonorable use and the vessels for honorable use, they come, Paul says, from the same lump. You don't have a bad lump and you make dishonorable and a good lump that you make honorable. No, the dishonorable and the honorable come from the same lump of clay. But you're still going to sputter. That's not fair. If we're just passive clay with no free will, then how can God righteously judge us? Well, the first thing you need to understand is that the clay isn't innocent clay. <laughs> it's sinful clay. Charles Hodge, he puts it like this. It is not the doctrine of the Bible that God first makes men wicked and then punishes them for their, from, for their wickedness. The Scriptures only assert what we see and know to be true, that God permits men in the exercise of their own free agency to sin and then punishes them for their sins and in proportion to their guilt. It's not the right of God to create sinful beings in order to punish them, but His right to deal with sinful beings according to His good pleasure that is here and elsewhere asserted. He pardons or punishes as He sees fits. 
And he continues, The punishment of the wicked is not an arbitrary act, having no object but to make them miserable. It is designed to manifest the displeasure of God against sin and to make known God's true character. End quote. Someone may still dare to object, but you, claim when, but you claim that God is sovereign over everything. He decreed all that is, has come to pass. He could have made a world where sin was not possible, but He didn't. So if you assert that God is totally sovereign, then you make Him to be the author of sin. Well, I'm tempted here to respond to the charge with Paul's retort, Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? But I want to say something. First, some push human free will to the point that they absolutely rob God of His ultimate sovereignty. They fall into the the error of dualism, where there's this evil power in the universe that has actually disrupted God's plan, and God is trying to gain the upper hand, but He has not yet succeeded. Well, we looked at these verses just, I mean, I guess it's two weeks ago. We had something else last week. It's clear that God works all things after the counsel of His will. That's Ephesians 1.11. That includes the sinful actions of Satan and of human beings. The cross is exhibit A. In Acts 4, 27 and 28, we read, For truly in this city... There were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Listen to the list. Both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. There was nothing more evil that has ever occurred than the crucifixion of the Son of God. And it says, yeah, but it was according to God's plan. God predestined the cross, which included the most sinful actions of people in the history of the world. But although God ordained the cross and the fall of man, which is the necessary reason for the cross, He did so in such a way that He is not in any sense the author of sin or responsible for sin. How many have ever read the Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689? Yeah, we got a we got a we got a few that have. Well, it's now out in a rewritten modern English, so it's a lot easier to understand. I'm just going to read the first three points from it that discusses God's predestination. He says, number one, from all eternity, God decreed all that should happen in time, and this He did freely and unalterably, consulting only His wise and holy will. Yet in so doing, he does not become in any sense the author of sin, nor does he share responsibility for sin with sinners. Neither by reason of his decree is the will of any creature whom he has made violated, nor is the free working of second causes put aside, rather it is established. In all these matters, the divine wisdom appears, as also does God's power and faithfulness in effecting that which he has purposed." Number two, God's decree is not based upon His knowledge that under certain, cer- certain conditions, certain happenings will take place, but is independent of all such foreknowledge. Number three, 
by His decree and for the manifestation of His glory, God has predestinated certain men to eternal life through Jesus Christ, thus revealing His grace. Would anybody disagree with that? No. When He saves men, He is displaying His grace. Others whom He has left to perish in their sins show the terrors of His justice. End quote. Now, you could chew on those words literally for the rest of your life. Paul's point in verses 19 through 21 is that the sovereign God has all the rights to deal with sinners as He chooses. Sinners have no rights. So we have to think through these issues by taking our proper place before God, saying, you alone are God, I am not. With Job, again, we must say, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Therefore, I retract, (laughs) I repent. He says, I repent in dust and ashes. Well, point number two, the sovereign God deals with sinful creatures in such a way as to display His glory. Now, this is verses 22 and 23. He's expounding on verses 17 and 18, and Paul kind of measures two sides of this or reveals two sides of this. A, God displays His glory by His patience, wrath, and power when He judges sinners who are prepared for destruction. That's verse 22. What if God... Desiring to show his wrath and to make his make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Now, what if that's not a hypothetical question that may or may not be true? It's actually a rhetorical question introducing a, a statement of fact. It's as if Paul is saying, "What's it to you if God holds off on judging sinners?" so as to make a greater display of His patience, three things, patience, wrath, and His power. In other words, when those things are demonstrated, God's glory increases. Douglas Moo explains, he says, In the case of both Pharaoh and the vessels of wrath, God withholds His final judgment so that He can more spectacularly display His glory. Or John Piper puts it like this, The final and deepest argument Paul gives for why why God acts in sovereign freedom is that this way of acting displays most fully the glory of God, including His wrath against sin and His power in judgment, so that the vessels of mercy can know Him, know God, most completely and worship Him with the greatest intensity for all eternity, end quote. Now, what does Paul mean here when he says vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Is he actually talking about double predestination, that, that God created some just for the purpose of judging them? Martin Lloyd-Jones and John Bunyan, they argue since the subject of the verb is not stated, it doesn't say who uh, does this to them, They say that the sinner fits himself for destruction and that by their own sin. They're sinners. They have fit themselves for destruction. Now, this is in contrast to the vessels of mercy that Paul specifically and explicitly states that God prepares beforehand for glory. All right? Others, 
That's one that they fit themselves. Others like Douglas Moo, Thomas Schreiner, uh, John Murray, Charles Hodge, John Piper, they argue that the context of Pharaoh and God hardening his heart and God being the potter, all right, that that argues that God actually prepares these vessels for destruction. Now, this doesn't mean that God arbitrarily made these men as sinners so that he could demonstrate his wrath. Every sinner is responsible for his own sin. No one can blame God for making him a sinner. But it is to argue that God is sovereign even over proud, defiant sinners. They may think that they can stand against him, but they're, they're nothing but pawns in his hand. He uses them to display his patience, his wrath, and his power. And then he righteously judges them for their sin. Now, I think it's better to refer to God's foreordination of the wicked to judgment as reprobation rather than double predestination. Double predestination implies that God carries out both uh, election and damnation in the same way, which is certainly not true. In predestining us to glory, God works directly on our hearts through His Spirit to impart that new life, that saving faith, and all the blessings of salvation. Salvation requires the direct intervention of God. But in reprobation, God does not work immediately on the heart to infuse evil or to force people to sin. Rather, He works through secondary causes to permit sin so that the sinners are justly condemned for their willful sins. Now, predestination or unconditional election, it's a comfort to believers because it assures us that God's purpose for us will come to pass. He will complete it in spite of our many sins. And it humbles us to realize that we deserved His judgment, and yet He showed us His mercy. Reprobation, while a difficult doctrine to contemplate, is also in the Bible to comfort believers with the truth that no evil person can upset or thwart the sovereign purpose of God. Pharaoh tried to oppose God's will, didn't he? But God raised him up, patiently endured his sin, so that God could make known his wrath and power before he destroyed him. We read a minute ago, Judas the Jewish leaders, Herod and Pilate, they all sinned by crucifying Jesus and they were judged for it. But what they did accomplished God's sovereign plan. The cross was not plan B, you guys. It was plan A from the get-go. You see, no wicked ruler, false teacher, persecuted the church, or tyrannical government uh, is able to frustrate God's plan. The fact that He doesn't just obliterate them before they increase their terrible sins, that shows His great patience towards sinners. But it also increases their guilt, rendering them more inexcusable. When God finally judges them, He shows the glory of His wrath and power. Now this should cause us to fear God as the righteous judge and to repent of our sins. And we should worship God for His holiness, for His righteousness. We, we talked about this Sunday night. This is just a little sidebar, I guess you'd call it. We talked about it Sunday night that we know God is love. 
That's quite evident. John says, <laughs> for God is love in First John. So he tells us God is love. And we see that throughout the, the New Testament. What you don't get a great picture of is uh, another characteristic that is talked about, but not to the degree that it is, is in, the whole, in, the, in the Old Testament. And that's the holiness of God. You got the love of God and the holiness of God. How what are, what, are some, what are some things that flow out of His love? Well, we've talked about it this morning a little bit. His mercy, His grace, His patience, all of the, His love, of course. All of that comes from God's love. What comes out of God's whole... And here's another thing to think about. There's only one attribute of God that is mentioned uh, three times in a row. We call it the trihagion. We find it in Isaiah 6 and in Revelation it says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Not love, love, love. That's never said. It says He is love, but the angels refer to Him as holy, holy, holy. So what are some things that come out of God's holiness? We've seen some things that come out of His love, and we love those things. What comes out of His holiness? How about <laughs> His justice? How many, how many really want... The justice of God to get what you deserve. No. His righteousness. His, uh, what's the right word? Um, what is it when you're separate? Uh, transcendence. <laughs> Here's how God is transcendent. He's so different from us. He is creator. Everything else, including us, is creation. That comes out of His holiness. Now, God told, the, those, told Israel in the Old Testament, and Peter tells us as the church, be holy because I am holy. So don't, don't, just, don't just concentrate on the love side when you're thinking about God. His glory is best revealed as this passage explicitly talks about when His patience, His power, and His wrath are demonstrated. Now, I may have preempted myself. I'm not sure. Let's go forward. So B, God displays His glory by making known the riches of His mercy on vessels of mercy which He prepared beforehand that He is God, which God prepared beforehand for glory. That's simply verse 23. In order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy which He has prepared beforehand for glory. How many of you ever bought a diamond? Just a diamond. You're going to look at diamonds. What does a jeweler, jeweler, jeweler do? What does he do? He puts it on a, a piece of black velvet, doesn't he? Why? The brilliance of that diamond now shines all the more. Well, God's unmerited grace, His mercy, shines more brilliantly against the terrible backdrop of human sin. Now, I'm not as, as eloquent nor as gifted as John Piper, so I'm, I want to quote from his sermon on this. It is so good. As a Christian, you are a vessel of mercy. That's what Paul's talking about. Okay? As a Christian, you are a vessel of mercy. You were called out of spiritual deadness and sinful darkness by mercy, through mercy, and for mercy. By mercy, because in our rebellion... We didn't deserve to be awakened and opened and subdued by God. 
through mercy, because every influence that worked on us to bring us to Christ was a mercy from God. And for mercy, because every enjoyment that we will ever have forever and ever will be a merciful enjoyment. And mercy itself will be supremely pleasant to taste and to know. He goes on to say that the fact that we are vessels of mercy means that all the blessings of salvation are undeserved. We deserve judgment because of our sin, but God showed us mercy. Now, this is extremely humbling for believers, but it is hopeful if you are not a believer because you don't have to qualify for mercy. The riches of God's mercy and grace, they are available to you at this very moment. God's ultimate purpose is not just to display His glory, which is mind-boggling enough. It's to display the riches of His glory on vessels of mercy. That's believers. Have you received God's mercy in Christ by believing in Him? If so, then God has opened your eyes to see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. You have begun to enjoy the unfathomable riches of Christ. That's Ephesians 3.8. But also, in the ages to come, this is looking at eternity, God will show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That's Ephesians 2.7. That means for eternity, we're going to be marveling over the grace of God. Now, the point of that word riches, Piper says, is to waken in us a sense that our inheritance in God is infinitely greater than the greatest riches on earth. He says, oh, how foolish we are to lay up treasures on earth when the glory of God is our portion. End quote. Well, you may be thinking, I I'm not sure that I'm a vessel of God's mercy. I, I don't know if I'm one of the elect. How do I know whether God prepared me beforehand for glory? Well, the same apostle who wrote our passage this morning in the next chapter, in verses 10 or 12 through 13, he's going to say, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for, for all who call upon Him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Will you call on the Lord for mercy today? If you do, He's abounding in riches for you. Let's pray. Father, what a good and gracious and merciful God You are that in spite of our sin, You would send Your sinless Son to the cross to bear Your wrath, to bear the sin uh, Father, uh, of those who would believe on You and then to bear the wrath against that sin so that we might know You uh, in mercy. Father, Your mercy draws us. And I pray that You do that this morning. If there's anybody out here that doesn't know Your Son Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that uh, they would cry out to You this morning for mercy. Do that for Your honor and Your glory and we'll give You praise for it. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, maybe you're out there and you know that you're not, you're not a Christian. You're not a believer. You, you don't know God uh, like you should. Matter of fact, you're probably pre pretty scared of Him. Maybe you've come to a point where you realize, hey, 
I need to do something about this. Uh, that wouldn't be you giving you that recognition. That'd be the Holy Spirit <laughs> giving you that recognition. Pay attention to it. Run to God, not away from Him. Too many people do that. They get convicted a little bit of their sin, and man, they just hightail it. Woo, I don't like that feeling. No, if you'll go ahead and run to God rather than run. I think that is the exact reason that David is known as a man after God's own heart. When he was convicted of his sin, he always ran to God, not away from him. Maybe you need to run to God this morning. The publican there in Luke 18, he didn't have anything to brag about. He knew he needed God. He, he stood there, his head down. He wouldn't even raise his eyes. He was beating his chest. And he simply said this, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He recognized he was a sinner. He needed, he needed help. So he simply asked God to be merciful. That's what we're talking about in Romans 9. That's all you got to do. Jesus said about this man, he went home justified. That's a big Bible word that means right with God. If you need to be right with God today, call out to Him to have mercy on you. Trust what Jesus did some 2,000 years ago on the cross and come to Jesus today. If you're a believer, I hope that you've just been encouraged to understand that all this junk that we see in the world, all the disturbances, God has allowed that. It allows Him a chance to display His patience, His power, His wrath, which all demonstrate His glory. So don't think that that's necessarily a terrible thing. It didn't take God by surprise. Right? Walk confidently this week knowing that your Savior is sovereign. He's in control of all things. That alone should give you, give you a couple, couple things. Comfort. Spurgeon's the one that said the sovereignty of God is what uh, crushes the heathen, <laughs> but it's what the believer lays his head down on every night to rest, knowing that God is in control. Praise God. The other thing it should do for you, not only give you comfort, it should give you a little boldness. I promise you, you're not going to die before your time. I don't care how embarrassed you may feel, but be bold in the gospel. That's what we're to be. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, crawfordvillefbc.com.